0: Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. For this episode, we're going to play an excerpt from a conversation that was hosted by the Barnard Center for Research on Women. The conversation was between Richard Bullitt, professor of history and Middle East studies at Columbia, and Dr. Nina Ansari, the author of the book Jewels of Allah, The Untold Story of Women in Iran. Based on her doctoral thesis on the women's movement in Iran, Ansari's book breaks down stereotypical assumptions and the often misunderstood story of women in Iran today. In the discussion you're about to hear, Bullet and Ansari pick apart the restrictive measures undertaken by the Islamic regime that ironically ended up empowering women. We're only playing an excerpt of their conversation in this podcast, but we've also posted a link to the full video recording of the discussion at thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. The audience Q&A was led by Barnard College President Deborah Spar, and it is definitely worth checking out. Now, here's Richard Bullet.
1: Richard Bullitt Well, good evening. Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I don't feel like I should be a co-equal with our uh, honored guests uh, and alumna for this event uh, because I'm not a specialist on women in Iran. Nevertheless, I have a few things to say. Um, Partly because this is not only about women in Iran, but this is about how Americans think of women in Iran. And that perhaps makes uh, a few remarks that I have to make a little more relevant uh, on Facebook yesterday I saw something and it's, somebody had said if uh, Ansari got her PhD at Columbia she probably worked with Bullitt and uh, and then somebody had responded no Bullitt knows about a lot of things but he doesn't know anything about uh, post revolutionary Iran and I only mention that to to emphasize that Nina's doctoral work was not something that was handed to her as a topic by her, uh, by her sponsor. Um, this, you know, She found so many things and went through so much material that I knew nothing about that um, it was kind of, from my point of view, the ideal thing where I learned much more from the doctoral student than they learned from me. Nevertheless, as I say, I have a couple of things to say about women in Iran. I first went to Iran 50 years ago Uh, with my late wife, and we spent some time in the city of Nishapur, uh, where my first book, my doctoral dissertation, uh, was uh, focused on. And in Nishapur at that time, uh, 1966, uh, there were three women who did not wear a chador In the entire city, about 30,000 people. I think, I'm pretty sure there was only three. There was the wife of the French cotton expert who was there to advise the farmers. There was my wife, and there was the wife of the chief of the education system in Nishapur who was an Iranian who had migrated from the Soviet Union. And she had grown up in the Soviet system where they thought it was, of course, uh, foolish to be wearing a chador. Otherwise, all of the women uh, or uh, a chador, which was a uh, normally black garment that went from here all the way down to the ground, and if you were um, uh, if you wanted to, you could sort of hold it over your face or put in your teeth and hold it that over your t- face that way if it's something to carry. But the chador was the norm for uh, Iran outside the capital at that time. Uh, when my wife went to the public bath. Um, uh, during the time when it was open for women, uh, children threw pebbles at her on the street uh, because she, was, you know, she wasn't she was wearing a chador. I was back in Iran um, uh, a number of years later in 1977, the last time I was there before the revolution. And of course, enormous changes had taken place, particularly after uh, 1973 when you'd had an oil price uh, a shock that really changed many things in the world. And the Chadur was uh, one of those things that was advertised as now being on the way out. I was in Hamadan, uh, which was another provincial city, somewhat larger than Nishapur, at a conference. And the conference was under the sponsorship of the Empress. Um, so at the initial meeting of the conference, every public employee in Hamadan uh, attended. And I was the first speaker, and so there was this movie theater filled with hundreds of people who had no idea what I was talking about. And then as soon as we had the coffee break, all of, them, all of the audience disappeared, and we were down to the 20 or so conferees. They'd shown up because they had been ordered to. And that evening, there was a reception at the officers' club. The officers' club was an important thing because the army was very important under the shot. And in the room, a room probably close to the size of this, you had all of the officers from the Iranian army stationed in Hamadan and all of their wives. And all of their wives were wearing party dresses. There not a single chador to be seen. And they were all sitting in chairs lining the perimeter of the room. And then you had a sort of cordon sanitaire of about four or five feet, before you got the cluster of men in the center of the room talking to each other. Uh, No woman talked to any man, and no man talked to any woman, but they were not wearing the chador, And all the women looked incredibly uncomfortable. We had one woman in the conference, uh, the redoubtable uh, Anne Lambton of uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. She talked to women, but nobody else did. And and yet, Americans were very uh, much of the opinion that things were changing in Iran because the Chadur was on the way out. But you don't change attitudes just by changing clothes. Uh, The last time I was in Iran uh, was 20 years after that, in 1996. And I went to the... Uh, I was in Tehran. I went to the Tehran Book Fair, which was, um, oh, about three circus tent-sized pavilions with uh, hundreds of exhibitors showing books uh, before the revolution. You did not want to go to an Iranian bookstore, there was nothing interesting to buy, but here were all these exhibitors and it was thronged with high school and college students, boys and girls. going, running back and forth, looking at the books, um, seemingly interacting with one another, no security around. All of the girls had chadurs on, or a hijab. Some of them had chadurs, the old style. Most of them just had the hijab, the the scarf. And I thought, well, those officers' wives dressed in ways that would suit Americans uh, before the revolution, but now uh, after the revolution, uh, the clothing seemed to be more conservative, but the women weren't, and that leads me to uh, to Nina's doctoral thesis, because what I think she has focused on most effectively in the thesis is the degree to which uh, the last 35 years of, of the Islamic Republic of Iran um, has had a Uh, has seen an enormous change in the activities and the education and the behavior of women, changes that were not advocated by the leadership of the country but came about anyway. And I think that what I want to start with is asking Nina, how did this come about? How did women, uh, under a repressive and only... Uh, partially democratic uh, religious regime uh, becomes so very active uh, in comparison to the way things had been prior to the revolution. So,
2: Tina. Thank you so much. Um, Tina, thank you so much for the kind introduction. I'm thrilled to be back at Barnard. Um, and thank you for the lovely um, foundation for our conversation. Uh, the most phenomenal thing about Iran is that I was a woman born in Iran and I left at the cusp of the revolution and much of what I uncovered about women in Iran um, did not come from my own background or from mainstream media for that matter. It came about um, through the mentorship of Professor Bullitt and Professor Kamali who's here in the audience tonight uh, really uh, for me was eye-opening because as Professor Bullitt said, what the Pahlavi monarchy had envisioned prior to the Islamic Republic, um, which is a Western trend, and the adoption of Western customs has actually come to fruition during a most unexpected era, which is an oppressive era, which is an era that um, has embedded gender discriminatory laws at every turn. But here you have not only women uh, but a whole new generation of uh, Iranians who don't subscribe to this ideology. In terms of women in Iran, uh, one of the most empowering mediums has been the value of their education. Uh, you had a predominantly dormant traditional segment during the Pahlavi monarchy, which uh, did not understand... Uh, the rapid motion towards the adoption of Western customs. So you had a traditional segment that despite all the rights bestowed did not take advantage, nor did they embrace those rights in the proper manner. So you have what's really on the surface when you look at it, uh, liberating mediums initiated by the Pahlavi monarchy were only embraced by a very small minor percentage of women who took advantage of them and uh you know what we look at on the surface as seemingly liberal and liberated for many women ended up being restrictive namely what professor bullet touched on which is you saw women uh who did not embrace uh the adoption of a western attire or western lifestyle these women actually when Khomeini initially came to power and uh, mandated the veil. The veil was a welcome alternative for so many women initially, who actually felt more comfortable um, coming out of seclusion. The other phenomenal uh, discovery that we made during my journey was that uh, the Western educational infrastructure that the Pahlavi monarchy had embedded with the help of the US was actually never dismantled despite the fact that the Islamic Republic for the first three years uh decided to embark on Islamization of the nation. So what we discovered in uh looking at the specifically the elementary school textbooks was that not only was the uh Western educational infrastructure not dismantled, and you know the right thing to have done was to revert back to the traditional religious schools that were the norm prior to the Pahlabi monarchy. Not only were they not reverted back to that uh, the elementary school textbooks that were used during the Pahlavi monarchy were also pretty much kept intact and merely superficially Islamicized. So that's one of the uh, reasons, uh, a small pocket of why you have an empowered uh, generation of women is that they were raised and reared in this Western educational infrastructure Part of my work centered on why this new generation that has really been cut off from the West because this regime, the hardliners are averse to the West, subscribe to a Western mentality despite an oppressive atmosphere, is uh, being educated in a Western medium. Two was the fact that you, uh, the, the reversion back to single-sex schools, which is uh, a lot of, of outsiders tend to look at that as an oppressive, segregated society, was also a welcome alternative for traditional families who felt comfortable sending their daughters um, to become educated in single-sex environments. Now, in the 90s, which is after Khomeini came to power, there was actually a series of studies that came out in Western nations, in Europe and specifically in America, that actually proved how empowering, specifically for women, single-sex education at the primary and secondary level is. Uh, So I refer refer to this as really the perfect storm where women in Iran are concerned because some of the seemingly backward measures ended up empowering the women of Iran.
1: So say a little bit about um the ways in let, let me make it clear here just uh the substantial majority of all of the university students in Iran are women. The level of literacy in Iran for women is is way over ninety percent and it is uh, maybe next to Israel perhaps Turkey um, has the best educated women uh, the most literate women and the uh, broadest education of women uh, in the Middle East. Um, And it is a, um, you know, it appeared to be a paradox. How could you have a religious regime dominated by clerics, overwhelmingly dominated by clerics, who were not friendly to women in particular, who have very traditional views? How could women have done so well in education? They certainly were not doing well in the, to the same degree in jobs or things like that. But uh, you mentioned the wearing of the hijab. And um, uh, what for people who lived in villages, uh, Iran at the time of the revolution was still a country of villages. Um, how did they feel about sending their daughters to school if they could not wear the chadur?
2: You mean pre-revolution, pre right? Well, a lot of them actually forbid their daughters from going to school, meaning you had very few women who came from traditional families, young girls whose families felt comfortable sending them to school in a co-educational, westernized environment. So actually... A lot of these families uh, did not allow their daughters to go to school in in these environments. You had very few families, uh, traditional families, who were not averse, uh, despite the fact that it conflicted with their own ideological mores. And so, but predominantly, these young girls were kept at home. And specifically, with rural families, they actually used their children as part of the workforce in the agricultural sector. So it wasn't. You know, one was that they used the children as part of their workforce, and two, they didn't relate to this climate, were uncomfortable sending their eight-year-old to sit next to a girl without a headscarf and a miniskirt, so it kind of worked in sync, and they sort of, uh, it was uh, sort of something that they could not embrace. It, it was an overnight change, and uh, you know, the literacy cores that were sent to the rural areas talk about um, when we were looking
1: that was in the time of the Shah.
2: Right, at the primary sources, how they were sent to, uh, because they were aware that this was having adverse effects, they even uh, implemented Quranic recitations as part of the curriculum. They even tried to separate the classroom with boys on one side, girls on one side. But it, it really was, was uh, to no avail, really. We... Remember, when we looked at the material and the uh, interviews that they had done with the literacy corps, uh, men and women had all said that we tried our best to get these uh, families to send their daughters to school, and they just were not buying it.
1: Now, if you go to school, of course, that's a good thing. Um, But there's a question of what are you being taught in school, and what are you learning? Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in uh, Qatar in the Persian Gulf, where... Uh, as you, University of Qatar, University of Qatar is 77 percent female, um, and it's two campuses. Well, it, campus is split between the boys' half and the girls' half, so they do not mix. Um, it, like the University of the United Arab Republic, that I, uh, I the United uh, Arab Emirates, that I was visiting a couple of years before that, which was 80 percent female. Um, About as bad an education as there is uh, anywhere in terms of quality of instruction and in terms of the, um, uh, you know, the quality of the graduates as they come out. In Iran, it appears that the women who get an education actually are educated and are able to read things. Now, one of the things that happened in the Arab Gulf that they decided they should have education in English uh, because English is the international language, the language of the future and so forth and so on. So here you had girls who, many of them really did not understand English, who were going to college, uh, getting degrees in English language university. Um, I took over one class uh, and I asked them, you know, how long it would take them to read a 30 page uh, article in English. And they said, well, that would take the entire semester. Of course, that's the way we l- used to learn Arabic here, <laughs> where you'd read 30 pages a year. And um, and then the professor would give a lecture in English and then stand in the hallway afterwards and repeat it in Arabic because so the girls could understand something. Now, the girls were happy because they, get, they were away from home. Um, and otherwise, they would sit home with their their mothers and their aunts, and learn to be traditional Arab women of the Gulf variety. But this question of quality has a lot to do with what language you're teaching it. And one thing that happened in Iran is that the language of instruction is Persian. And you have one thing after the revolution, there was an absolute flood of Western books translated into Persian. So could you say something about the intellectual equality of the women whom you deal with?
2: Well, the, first of all, the inter, you know, one thing that we're also not aware about here is that, uh, and I wanted to highlight this specifically tonight and then get back to your question, is that Iran, uh, everyone tends to look at this regime as one entity. Iran actually has, uh, under this banner, has progressive clerics. And so what was very important also that, Empowered these women was the presidency of Mohammad Khatami, uh, who was really uh, a moderate and allowed for the infiltration of numerous feminist publications. Uh, were given procured licenses and allowed to operate within this oppressive environment. Now, the feminist publications that I specifically looked at uh, that came about during the Khatami era were actually, in so many ways, more progressive and more inclusive where a woman's rights is concerned from a global perspective than the ones that were used a pre-revolution. So that also, Professor Bullitt, I know I analyzed those uh, magazines as well. I mean, these young girls are also being exposed to a plethora of feminist publications for eight years as well, so that was also taken into consideration, and these were also magazines that translated excerpts from renowned Western feminists, like Simone de Beauvoir, Virginia Woolf, these are all, this is the language that these girls were um, exposed to, that was translated in a language that they could relate to, that they could understand, and also a language that conveyed that the West, which this regime uh, shuns, Uh, particularly when the Supreme Leader comes out and says that gender equality is one of the West's biggest misconceptions. These magazines actually showcase the more common ingredients between Western women and Iranian women, namely uh, the fact that Western women were also once uh, inflicted with patriarchal uh, boundaries and that we have more in common that is assumed.
1: I want to uh, point out one thing here about your book. Um, I thought when I saw it, well, this is her doctoral dissertation uh, uh, rewritten in a more accessible fashion, which it is. But then in the back of the book, you have a kind of uh, picture, you have pictures and capsule stories of eminent Iranian women. Uh, Scarcely any of them would be people Americans would have heard of. But can you Tell us something about some of these women that you
2: celebrate in the book. Oh, the, the These women are actually the, actually I rewrote my doctoral thesis because Professor Bullitt encouraged me to rewrite my doctoral thesis as a mainstream book. So I have to give him the credit for that. Um, so I uh, I actually asked Professor Bullitt, I don't think anybody really cares about women in Iran. And he said, well, you're not, you don't know that and I don't know that. I care and you care and that's good enough. So you should really go about rewriting this in a way that maybe your daughter can read and enjoy as opposed to a dense doctoral thesis. So while I was rewriting the uh, the manuscript, I decided to post every Monday, Wednesday, Friday on social media, a photograph of an accomplished Iranian woman. Now, this could be a woman during the Achaemenid era, which is pre-Islam, a woman in post-revolutionary Iran with a small caption of her accomplishment in order to gauge public interest. So these women that Professor Bullet refers to are the compilation of women from March 2014 to March 2015, and it's still ongoing, uh, that I highlighted on my social media page and that so many followers would say, can you please put this in your book? Because while I was rewriting the book, a lot of the narrative that I infused in the book, uh, came from, uh, a lot of them actually came from, uh, social media engagement of followers. So I decided, uh, because I got so many requests to put this in the book, I couldn't infuse these women into my uh, the body of the book, but I decided to devote a whole chapter at the very end and called it Exemplary Women of Iran, women who've uh, contributed throughout the centuries to empowering and laying the foundation for women's empowerment. So uh, it's a really a, a way for the book to end that's an homage to the Iranian woman throughout the centuries.
1: This
0: podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with over 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights to delight the left and right sides of the brain. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu.